This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My name is, is Will. I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. Uh, and looking around, I see a few of our college students returning. So uh, welcome back, you guys. So good to see you. Um, and excited to see uh, many more of you soon um, as things get underway over on campus. So. Um, my family, we just finished kind of our, our round of summer trips. And I use the word trip intentionally because we have a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. And so vacation does not look the same anymore. Okay, vacation means like sleeping in and relaxing. And that, that did not happen with a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. Um, but we went on trips. We brought our family other places where we could, you know, get bad sleep at night and have adventures <laughs> during the day. And so um, I want to tell you a story about about getting, uh, well, getting to Colorado. We went to Colorado, and, uh, and of course, we flew there, and it was a complete disaster. It, it just had, like, total abject failure written all over it, and I'll tell you why. Okay, so we, we planned this trip to start the day after our student mission trip that I was leading. So I dropped off, thank you, I dropped off the rental car at like 11 p.m. I got in bed at midnight, and three hours later, I woke up so that we could make our 6 a.m. flight. And when I looked at the things that we had packed, we had so many bags, so much luggage and car seats, you know, forgetting that we're going to be holding one kid and like pushing the other in a stroller. We actually have no hands to hold on to luggage, and yet we still need to like get all of this on the plane. Okay, but we throw all of those bags and all the luggage in the car. We're flying southwest, so we head to Midway. You know, we get all of our stuff into Midway. I pull out my credit card, stick it in the ticket thing, and nothing comes up. And this shock and realization comes to my mind. I look at my phone, and for some reason, our Southwest flight is flying out of O'Hare, not Midway. So it's 4.30 a.m., and, you know, Emma calls up her sister who had ridden with us in the car, like, Tasa, turn around. We're like, we need to go to O'Hare, like, fast. You know, so she turns around. We throw, you know, everything in the back. You know, we don't even, like, buckle in the kids. We just, like, strap them to the top of the car. And, uh, and, you know, we, we truck up through the city trying to get to, to O'Hare. And, of course, you know, it's in the international terminal. It has to be, like, the furthest terminal away. You know, same story. We get in. We throw all the luggage out. We get in the luggage line. You know, we talk to the lady there. And, uh, and, and she's like, well, do you have a birth certificate, you know, for the baby? I'm like, what do you, why do we need a birth certificate in there? She's like, I don't know if that baby's two. And I'm like, look at her. She's a baby. You know, but so we, we like pull up this photo of March 16th, 2020, the day she was born, you know, this little like wrinkly red little baby. And we're like, here, is this proof? And she's like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why should that matter? Like that could be anybody's kid. <laughs> you know, but so then, so then we like, we get through that. We get in the security line. You know, Emma gets through. She's pushing Elodie on the stroller. Gabe, my four-year-old, has insisted on bringing his own carry-on that he's thrown like seven shirts in. I'm like, why do you have this? You know, but that's going through the thing. And the TSA agent, you know, she says, sir, is there a knife in here? And I say, absolutely not. You know, I'm just trying to, like, get us through here. You know, she, like, unzips the bag and pulls out a bright yellow butcher's knife. <laughs> this long, that has my son's name written on it in permanent marker. 
because, you know, this is grandma's knife, and he really liked it, and whatever he wants, he gets from grandma, and so she agreed. She'd write his, I don't know how he got this knife. He, like, took it out of her drawer and packed it without any of us knowing. So, I'm, so I say, I'm so sorry, he packed his own bag. <laughs> so we, like, so we, like, get through there, you know, Emma's running with Elodie. She's, of course, it's like the furthest gate in the terminal. So she's running with Elodie. I've got Gabe on my shoulders. I'm thinking, this is not worth it. Like, my heart is beating so fast. I don't exercise. The first exercise I've gotten in a long time. I put Gabe down. I'm like, okay, can you run? You know, we start running together. And I'm hearing these murmurings of people who are running past. They're like, whoa, look at that kid. And then, uh, and then, you know, Gabe hits one of those, like, um, seatbelt, you know, things that, like, makes the queuing line, you know, one of those straps. It just totally clotheslines him. He doesn't see it coming. <laughs> so he, like, tucks and rolls, and I hear everybody going, ooh. <laughs> you know, but there's no time. And I look down, I'm like, Gabe, are you okay? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, go. <laughs> and so we get there. We're both out of breath, but, like, for some, somebody, I mean, by the grace of God, somebody had taken one of the little pins that's in the fire extinguisher, and so the plane was delayed because they had to find a pin to stick back in there. So we get there. I mean, that was like, by the grace of God, we made our flight, and we're just like breathing heavy. Everybody's looking at us like we're insane. And Emma just says to the whole gate, we were at Midway at 4.30. <laughs> And the, the other parents that are there with strollers, they just, you know, <laughs> just like, we, we know what you had to do to get here. It just, it had failure written all over it. Okay, so I, I share that lighthearted story. <laughs> I promise this will connect. Um, I share that lighthearted story because we are in this series talking um, about, you know, Paul's missionary journey in the book of Acts, and he has found himself in Athens, and, and, and as he gets there, this scene has failure written all over it in a few different ways. So for one, um, verse 16, and, and I'm going to be doing just a lot of Bible work today, so I really encourage you, there's Bibles in front of you, you can pull those out, um, or if you brought one from home. I encourage you to get that out. But chapter 17, verse 16, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he's gotten run out of town where he was, and he's waiting for his companions to join him. So he's alone in Athens. You know, Athens, the cradle of Western civilization, like the intellectual center of the Roman Empire, where some of the greatest minds in history have lived. He's there in Athens. He's looking around, and he sees that the city is full of idols, full of these images of the gods in silver and gold, polished in these, in these really, you know, wonderful ways. One scholar called Athens a forest of idols. They're everywhere. You know, he's looking at the Acropolis, you know, this, this big hill with this towering, you know, the Parthenon that still stands today. You'd recognize it in photos. You know, the Parthenon, this temple to Athena up there on the hill. He looks around at all of this, and it says in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was, in another translation, it was deeply distressed. He is disturbed by what he sees. Because looking around at all of these idols, what Paul sees is a complete failure to understand who God is. 
You see, the idol, idols get things totally backwards. Idolatry gets things totally backwards. Idolatry assumes that the gods are, are angry and hungry because the gods must look like us, and we get angry and hungry, and so they need to be satisfied by all of these sacrifices and doing the right things, and if you do those things, then you'll get blessing in return. You'll get prosperity in return. And so Paul, a, a, a Jewish believer in Jesus, understands that this is not who God is, that God cannot be bought with our sacrifices. In fact, God doesn't need anything from us, but God loves us out of who he is, out of the abundance of who he is. He is a God of grace. And so Paul is deeply disturbed. He is provoked by what he sees because he sees that this is a well-meaning but, but totally failing enterprise in trying to understand God and trying to understand the divine. But when the people of Athens, when they look at Paul, they see failure written all over him. So verse 18. You know, oh, well, so Paul, before that, back up to verse 17. So he is, he's immediately provoked. So what does he do? He goes to the synagogue, and then he goes to the marketplace, and he's just talking to anybody who will listen about Jesus and the resurrection. Because who is Jesus? Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Another reason idolatry gets all of this wrong is because Jesus, he is the picture of who God is, not any of these other images. So he goes, and he's preaching in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are talking to him. You know, these are, these are the, the academic, the philosophers of the day. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And that word babbler is, is interesting. It's basically, they're mocking him. And they're saying, a babbler is this person who, who kind of like picks up these like big words, you know, that sound smart here and there, and then uses them in their speech, but really has no idea what they're talking about. So they're saying like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Like, he has, he has no idea. Paul must be trying to connect to Greek philosophy that he would have been familiar with growing up in Tarsus, you know, this major commercial center in the ancient world. He's familiar with these ideas, but they don't buy it. You know, they just think he's blowing smoke. You know, he's, he's posing as if he knows. So they're mocking him, and, and more than that, they're misunderstanding him. So going on in verse 18, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and resurrection. So they're hearing him talk about Jesus and resurrection, and they're like, you know, what is he saying? You know, Jesus, Jesus, Anastasis, resurrection. He must be talking about this, like, masculine and feminine pair of gods. So even Paul, there's like this failure to communicate. What he's trying to say, they're processing through their polytheistic world, and they don't even get it. They don't understand what he's saying. And all of this must have caused a stir. Because verse 19, and they took him. It's the same word for when Paul gets seized and brought before political authorities. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so there's a couple things we have to understand here. One is that the Areopagus, it's not just this, like, philosophical playground, you know, this, this place, you know, looking out on the Parthenon where, where philosophers debate different ideas. But the Areopagus was where the council of the city met. 
This was, this was a court at times. This is where they judge various philosophical ideas, where they judge religious ideas as either being helpful or harmful to society. And so that's the context that they're bringing them in. In this charge of you're bringing kind of new and foreign gods into our midst, that echoes the very same charges that were laid against the philosopher Socrates 400 years prior. And if you know how Socrates' story ends, it ends with the death penalty. Socrates is bringing these strange new gods into the midst of the people. And so there's this air of danger as Paul goes in front of these elite, powerful people in this incredible intellectual center. Paul, who are you? Who are you from this corner of the empire? You know, from this Jewish sect. This would be like somebody, you know, who's, who's been educated at, you know, maybe well-educated, but at, at kind of some, like, you know, way, way far out there college in the middle of nowhere, you know, coming into the halls of, like, Oxford or Harvard or something. We, tell us more about these ideas that you have with this air of danger, what could happen. So that's where Paul's end up. Paul ends up. And so what I want you to hear here as we're going to go through Paul's argument is that this isn't just a conversation. He's not just, you know, trying to help Christianity make sense to these Greeks, these Greek philosophers, but this is actually a confrontation. This is Paul the underdog going up against these elite, powerful minds of the day. And secondly, this is a confrontation between the God of Jesus and the gods of this world. The God of Jesus and the gods of this world. And Jesus, Paul's message throughout Acts is that Jesus came to liberate not just his own Jewish people, but he came to liberate the entire Gentile world from the vain and earthly things that keep them bound that keep them trapped. And he does the same for us today. Our idols go by different names. It's not, you know, Zeus and Apollo. You know, it's, it's not Athena, but it's, it's power and it's sex and it's money and it's success. It's notoriety. It's that feeling of uniqueness or specialness. These things that maybe are good in their place that promise to give our lives fulfillment. And Jesus has come to liberate us from the idea that that's what we need for a meaningful life. That's what we need for happiness. It's not true. He comes to craft us in his own image. And so you're going to see this confrontation, the God of Jesus versus the gods of this world. And I, and I think a summary statement here would be what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. That's what we'll see in this address. So he's going to do three things. And again, I know we're like going like deep in Bible work here, but this is such a cool argument that Paul makes that I, I just want you to see it. So he's, his, his kind of speech has three parts. The first is he's going to address this charge of newness. You know, this is like, this is kind of what they're charging him with. Like, you're bringing new and, and strange gods in our midst. He's going to address that first and kind of put that out of the way. Then he's going to have two arguments against idolatry using the Greeks' own thought against them. He's going to say, if you believe these things like you say you do, then all of this worship you're doing in Athens, this doesn't make sense on your own terms. 
And then number three, he's going to give a specific challenge for them to reckon with the person of Jesus. That's where we're headed. So you can look at verse 22, addressing this charge of newness. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, in the midst of this council, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And that word has kind of this double meaning. On the one hand, it's like a compliment. He's buttering them up and saying, I see that you're very religious. You know, he's complimenting them at the beginning of his speech. But Luke has already told us what Paul really feels. And what Paul really feels is that he is deeply distressed. And so the other meaning of this word is, you are superstitious, like you're crazy. And it's likely that, that there's an irony here where both of those things are happening at the same time, being said at the same time. So verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And you see how clever this is? They're accusing Paul of bringing these foreign gods into the midst of Athens. And instead, Paul is saying, no, no, I'm not talking about anything new. I'm talking about that guy, this unknown God that's kind of been here in your midst the whole time. I'm talking about him. There's nothing new about this. It's a really clever way of, of getting around that charge here. So then, his arguments against idolatry. Verse 24, the God who, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this is a, this is a Jewish argument. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in, in Psalm 50. You know, in Psalm 50 it says, God says, if I were hungry, like these, these gods that they believe in are hungry, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in all of its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, I created all of those things. You know, God, if he created the world, then there's nothing that he gets from creation. Like, it doesn't add to him at all. And so what's the proper response to God? It's, it's to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, it's to thank him for what he's doing, not to buy him off by, by supposedly feeding him, something like that. But here's the thing. That's a deeply Jewish idea, you know, here in the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's also a Greek philosophical idea. Socrates said the same thing. And these folks in the council would have known that. The Stoics believe the same thing. They all know that it doesn't make sense that if God created the world, he would need all of this food to be given to him. So Paul's doing a clever thing. He's like, if you believe that, then your idolatry that's happening here, it doesn't even make sense. And so going on in verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then 27, in order that they should seek God. There is something good about this religious enterprise, about your desire to know God. But here's the thing, as he explains, we, you know, we were created to seek God and perhaps feel our way towards him. And those words, and perhaps feel our way, you know, Paul is saying, like, you are walking around blind in the dark. It's a good enterprise that you're doing. You really don't know what you're doing here. You really don't know how to get to God. 
perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. But he reminds them in the words of their own poets and philosophers, yet God's not far from you. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting, you know, what their own intellectuals have said. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And now his second argument against idolatry. Being then God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Right? This is the fundamental problem of idolatry. It's thinking that if we are created by God, then God must look like us. God must emote like us. You know, he must get hungry and angry and irritable with us, you know, when we screw up, that sort of thing. He must be like that. You know, um, God, God must be this, this person that we kind of have to buy off or that we can, we can get around in these various ways by offering sacrifices, that God must want for us the things we want for ourselves. So if we want money or romance or success or power or any of these things, then those must be the things God wants to give us. But all of that is forming God in our image. And Paul is saying that's backwards. If we are his offspring, then he doesn't look like us. We look like him. We look like him. And how does that work? I mean, think about, you look at a person, and any of us, we look like our parents. But if you took a person... And you said, okay, I want you to take this, this person, their face, and draw pictures of both of their parents. You could not do it. There's no way you could get that right. There's no way to know what the parents look like simply by looking at the child. But if you saw a picture of their mom and dad, and then you looked at the child, you could say, oh, I see that she has her dad's eyes. I, I see that she has her mom's nose. And it's the same with God. You can't understand God by, by looking at us and our desires and, and our, you know, emotional irritability and up and down. But if you look at God and who he is, and you see that he is the source of goodness and beauty and truth, and then you look at humanity, you see, oh, I see what we were made to look like. If he is our father, and he's the source of goodness and beauty and truth, then when we reflect those things, we are living into that image of the one who created us. Paul's saying, look, you guys already believe these things. So your idolatry on your own terms doesn't make sense. It's this really clever argument and then he brings it all home. So he's, he's kind of doing this broad philosophical thing, and then he's going to bring it home to Jesus. Verse 30, the times of ignorance, you know, that word unknown, the times of worshiping that unknown God, not sure how to do this, those are over. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now something has happened. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world by a man whom he has appointed. He's saying the whole of human history turns on the incarnation of God's Son, his death, resurrection, and ascension. He says that the proof of all of this is that he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
And so it doesn't matter what philosophical school these members of the council are coming from, whether they're Epicureans or Stoics or Platonists or Aristotelians, whatever they are, all of them are going to feel the challenge of this because none of them think that this is how history ends with a judgment based on your view of this one person. Paul brings it all to Jesus. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. You know, why is this story in in Luke? Well, I think one of the reasons is to show that the foolishness of God can hang with any of the best schools of thought that that are out there. And that was true in Athens, and the same is true today. And we see that in in this rich Christian intellectual tradition. We have good reason to believe the things that we believe. And that has always been a conviction of Christianity. And there are going to be times in your life when you will be called to give an account to somebody for what you believe or why you believe it. And as soon as you begin to explain it, you are bound to be considered a babbler, like Paul was considered a babbler, like you don't know what you're talking about, talking about these big things, you know, justice and, and, and sexuality. Where, where do you come with your perspective? You know, this poser. You are going to be misunderstood as you begin to explain these things. You are going to feel like, man, I just feel like my words feel foolish. And this, this is just part of speaking the foolishness of God into the wisdom of the world. And I was thinking about this yesterday. I was hanging out with some of our high schoolers. And some of our students, you know, they're, they're starting to, you know, drive their own cars and, and get their own jobs and kind of interact in these different environments. And several students yesterday told me about an experience that they have where they're interacting with their coworkers, and their coworkers say, you're a Christian? You go to church? Are you one of those people? Are you, you know, are you one of those people who hates the LGBT community? Tell me about that. And they're put on the spot. They have to give an account for what they believe, even though all the cards are stacked against them in that moment. Oh, you're one of those people? You're a Christian? So you, you want to control women's bodies? Tell me about that. And there, in the front of their coworkers, our students have to give an account. And I was so encouraged by them. I mean, it moves me to tears because, because our students try to do it. They do it. They give the best accounting that they know to express, you know, the goodness and the sanctity of the human person, even from the earliest stages of life. They do the best job they can in putting that in language that their coworkers can understand. You know, they, they try to contextualize sexuality and say, look, I, sex is good and it's powerful, but it's about more than just, you know, kind of who you are and your identity. It's about more than simply connection with another person. It's about more than simply, you know, pleasure. But that sexuality, that sex is about telling the greatest story that's ever been told. That sex is about the story of God joining himself to humanity. And so any boundary that the Bible puts around sexuality is there to preserve our ability to tell that story. And they say this, and, and they try to express these things to their coworkers, and they just feel, they feel foolish. They feel like it's unconvincing. But here's what, here's what I tried to encourage them yesterday. is that if you look at this passage, 
Paul was unconvincing. He, he made this incredible speech, and the response couldn't have been more deflating. Look at this, verse 32. Now, when the council heard about the resurrection, when they heard about his last point, the last thing he said, they mocked him. It's like they didn't worry about, you know, they didn't talk about any of his other really good arguments. They just mocked him for this little last thing that he said. And others said, yeah, okay, we'll talk again about this. I mean, like, no encouragement there, like, wow, that's really impressive. You know, I want to rethink my life. He didn't, Paul didn't get any of that satisfaction. It's like, okay, yeah, you can, you can come talk again. We'll ask you some more questions. I mean, it's, it couldn't be more deflating. It was not effective persuasion in the moment. And I tell that to our students to say that the point of this, this text is not that you should become like Paul. I mean, it would be good for you to become like Paul, to become learned, to become courageous, to become winsome, and being able to speak into our culture the message of the gospel. All of those things would be good and important, but that's not where the power is. The power is not in you and in your persuasion, but the power is in the message itself, the proclamation of the scriptures, that Jesus is the Lord of all. That message has power. We see a little hint of that, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, you know, one of these guys from the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some come to believe, but think about what happens the next few hundred years. You know, with, with their Greek philosophy, they're dismissing Paul here. But in a few hundred years, all of that, the best of Greek philosophy is going to come into the service of Jesus. And we're going to get the words of our creed, that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, but they are of one being. They're the same. That is the best of Greek philosophy being used to describe this beautiful mystery of the Trinity. Paul's proclamation had power. He planted a seed in that moment. He was faithful in that moment. That's what our students are doing. That's what you have the opportunity to do. As people ask you to give an account for why you believe the crazy things that you believe, you have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and to trust that the power isn't in your ability to speak effectively, but the power is in the message itself. Amen? So may you, resurrection, may you trust that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. May you trust that the Lord's word does not go out in vain. And may you trust that the words of Scripture, the words of the gospel, are good news for anyone and everyone who hears them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.